When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Eureka, the show that gets under the skin of science in such a good way. As we invite a new expert every week to help us answer one of science's most interesting questions. There's an Isaac Asimov quote that is sort of vaguely related, but I'm not going to do it again because I've said it now, I think probably 30 times. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of episodes. If you want to hear it... If you want to hear it, just go back and listen to the back catalogue. It's a good quote. We say something pithy off the back of it, but we do it the same every week, and I'm just... I've had it. No, I like that. I like that. Let's innovate. Got to leave it. I'm Rick Edwards. And I'm Dr. Michael Brooks. Similarly, no dick at you not being a real doctor. <laughs> I'm leaving that now. Wow, um, we are moving into yeah, a new era. It's a new era. What I will say is I suppose you are the Robin to my Batman, the Rodney to my Delboy. <laughs> Your Delboy. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's actually unkind to both of us. <laughs> so you might take that. Yeah, I'm taking that. I, I think you're more the crisper to my Cas9. Oh my god! <laughs> you Imagine having up... to spend time with you voluntarily. <laughs> <laughs> you flag up what needs doing, and I'm the one who actually does it. You know, I got it. I just, I just didn't like it. It's, it's oh, incredibly, incredibly geeky. Right, and I like yeah. geeky stuff, but that's that's it's too, too far. far for me. Oh, okay. So, uh, are you crowbarring in a? Uh, and I, I use the phrase advisedly, genetics joke, um, because we're doing genetics today. Yes, we are. Yeah, um, obviously I did that. I'm, no, I'm a physicist. I wouldn't pull that out for any other reason, would I? <laughs> no, you had no idea what CRISPR was <laughs> before we started researching Half an hour ago. <laughs> uh, so what's the broad... So, I mean, basically what we're going to talk about today is how far we're going to push gene editing. So, oh, nice. So we're sort of asking what's next in the world of genetics. Yeah, so I guess the, the, the thing you immediately think of is uh, designer babies. Yeah. Would you... How much would you pick about your own child? So I'll well, get you to answer. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't pick a lot of stuff, obviously, because, you know, if they've got my genetics, they've got such a good start in life. Okay. It's not really worth changing anything, is it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a good answer. <laughs> I don't think it's a true answer. <laughs> <laughs> what but about I, you? Are, you? are you sort of saying, um, right, I'll, I'll, I'll pick and choose this? No, I think I'm good. Uh, same reason. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously with you. Uh, a narcissist I, speaks. Well, I don't know. It, it's the, the, the problem is that there are certain elements that you clearly would choose and we do choose and are able to choose increasingly. So, you know, genetic abnormalities and stuff. Like if you could choose not to have those, you, you will. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. And I don't think that's particularly... I mean, like... Well, like I was going to say it's not particularly contentious. I think it maybe it is slightly contentious. I mean, but I've got genetically mind, high cholesterol. Like yeah. chronically high cholesterol uh, because of my genes. And yeah. I guess I would probably want to edit that out. I and mean, there's no point having of that. Of course, yeah. There's no point keeping that. No. But what you don't know is what what is the effect of editing that out? Does it have unknown sort of side effects? And so that's why I'd be slightly sort of wary of it. Well, before we came into the into the studio today, we were just chatting briefly about the, the subjects we were covering. And um, my observation, which I think is correct about genetics, is it's really interesting, but it's also unbelievably complicated. Yeah, yeah. It's so hard. And by that, I don't mean necessarily hard to understand, although it is also hard to understand. Just the system is so complex. So you're right. Like one gene, I mean, well, the other thing is not much interesting stuff is controlled by one gene. No, no, Most that's stuff true. is going to be polygenic for starters. But even if it is one gene, so even if you could turn off one your cholesterol gene, you don't absolutely know that that's not having an influence on no. on some other feature. No, and we're going to get into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's nothing you'd, you'd change about you at all. Um, so, well, what about the chronic I've height got, problem? Uh, it's, it's not a problem. It's it a is solu- a problem. It's, it's You're, a you've got a terrible back. I have yeah, but that hmm, You're is too that to tall. Do with, your no, spine. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not too tall for my spine. Thank you. My spine is a piece of shit, but I don't know if that's <laughs> genetic. Um, I guess I would wonder about whether I'd want uh, bigger testicles. Really? But I've got small testicles now. To me, uh, <laughs> okay, that's actually not bad, right? Because they're they're very neat. <laughs> right, so yeah. very, very sort of compact. Yeah, don't take a lot of caring for. No, uh, they they sort of look after themselves. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Whereas uh, sometimes I'll look at a big old pair of nads. I'm like, imagine having those swinging around. I mean, you know, the just the, it feels like it's causing problems. But I can see there probably are drawbacks. So maybe I would just go up to sort of average size testes. Right. Okay. Was not expecting that. Yeah, but that's that's what I'm giving you. Yeah, um, but function. I think functionally, as far as I'm aware, they're, they're they're all good. So maybe I'm actually an improvement. On, on, on what? <laughs> on, 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 you mean on you're the, more efficient in terms of yeah, packaging? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, because you don't, the thing is, that they are vulnerable. Yeah, and uh, you don't really want to be taking a blow to them. And the smaller they are, and the more, as I say, <laughs> neatly packaged, the less likely that is to happen. Yeah, no. You know, sometimes that's, you'll that's see people thought. when they when they cross their legs and they're like, ah, yeah, <laughs> they yeah. just cat that. That's never happening to me. No, of course it isn't. Never happening to me. I'm glad you enjoy that. <laughs> According to Pfizer, humans share 96 percent of their DNA with chimpanzees, 60 percent with chickens, and most surprisingly, we share more than 60 percent of our DNA with bananas. As you might have guessed, genetics aren't straightforward and we've been messing around with them for quite some time now. The possibilities of what we might be able to do in the future are exciting and ethically concerning in equal measure. And that's why this week we're asking, what will geneticists do next? We have got Professor Matthew Cobb, a professor of zoology at the University of Manchester, the author of a new book called The Genetic Age, Our Perilous Quest to Edit Life which is out now in the UK. Uh, it's out in the US in mid-November. Uh, it's got a slight title change in the States. Hmm. It's As Gods, 
A Moral History of the Genetic Age. Oh, lovely. Which kind of tells you where, where Matthew's coming from, I think. Um, so we're going to hear some pretty strong opinions in the, in the next half hour or so. Whereabouts on the, on the timeline of the, of the moral history of genetics are we going to start with? So I'm going to let Matthew kick us off. And basically he says we've been tinkering with life's blueprint for thousands of years already. So humans are part of the ecosystem. Uh, we're predators. And so simply by being predators, and that includes not simply chasing animals, but also collecting berries and roots, we have shaped the animals and plants that we are interacting with. And that's just the way all, all life does that. So just, you know, we're going to try and use our, our intelligence to, to be dramatic, to hunt a, a mammoth or to pick a particular leaf. And by doing so, we're inadvertently changing the gene frequencies of the organisms that we're, we're eating because those organisms that we can't see, the berries that are slightly less visible to us, we don't eat. And so those characters are more likely to be passed on to the next generation. So we've been doing that from the very outset. And then with the development of agriculture, we started to deliberately breed particular kinds of animal or grow particular kinds of plant. And even we harnessed biotechnology without having the slightest idea what was going on. So we unwittingly, we discovered how to use microbes to make, for example, bread and beer. So we, we've been doing this from the very, very beginning. And there's a, a lot of argument amongst historians and people like that, that really there's no change. There's no, nothing different between what we do now, our ability to change single letters of DNA to either this history of deliberately changing species through artificial selection or further back our role as natural agents of selection hang on hang on <laughs> hang on a minute there, i think there is quite a big difference between natural selection and changing single letters of dna yeah, it's huge. I mean, Matthew, to be clear, Matthew's not saying that there isn't. He's saying some historians are saying ah, it's okay, just like, oh, okay, it's just okay. a continuum. Okay. So, I mean, clearly... It, oh, so, they're, it, well, they're wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay right. But so far, our expert isn't wrong, which is, I think, a new record now. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did we ask him what he thinks of the octopus? <laughs> <laughs> Survive the first clip unscathed. <laughs> um, so, I mean, basically, there's, there is a huge thing, isn't there? I mean, you know, doing those gradual changes, things that involve actually quite natural processes that have, have occurred through evolution anyway, and then... What we're doing, the technical approach, technological approach now, is a completely different thing, I think. But yeah. let, me, let me, I mean, let's sort of run through the kind of you know, history of, of gene editing very quickly. So, just breaking it down. Um, so, you've got uh, 1953, Crick and Watson and Rosalind Franklin obviously, uh, you know, worked together to, well, didn't really work together, but, you know, between them managed mm. to sort of give us the structure of DNA. Um, DNA is made in the test tube for the first time, 1958. In 1962, we used jellyfish proteins to kind of observe these sort of invisible processes. So we started to be able to manipulate things. Uh, 67, we're linking DNA fragments together. So we're starting to, you know, do something. So this is, you know, all a long time ago. Uh, we discovered restriction enzymes in 1968. So that was um, basically from bacterial action, sort of discovering that, you know, how they fight off potential predators effectively mm. uh, involves chopping down DNA. So, you know, that was the sort of first clue that we might be able to do something with that. 
then you know you get into the 1970s and it all sort of kicks off and everyone gets a bit scared mm-hmm. um so you get a, a few sort of moratoria that we you know where people where geneticists all agree that it's all going a bit too fast and we need to slow down everyone so you know you start to get this sense of like there might be ethical issues yeah with this particular branch of science think, i wonder who carried on it's got to be <laughs> trust me there's some people who carried on yeah we yeah. don't need to dwell on that but of course there are <laughs> um then uh, 1980 so 1981 we got the first transgenic animal which is uh, a mouse genome that has a bit of rabbit gene mm-hmm. in there so that's the sort of first sort of i guess what you might now call frankenstein sort of yeah, approach yeah. yeah uh that's the the 80s how long um, did it live of course, I mean, it, it probably never lived at all. It probably was just a sort of test tube yeah, thing. Yeah. I don't know the details mm-hmm. on that. But then we start to see the positives, right? And this is where it starts to get difficult. So 1982, we've got the first genetically en- engineered human drug, which is synthetic insulin, which is a massive deal for, you know, people with diabetes, obviously, because all of a sudden you're not dependent on, you know, thousands and thousands of animals, yeah. uh, you know, with their pancreas glands producing insulin. So, so that's great. Uh, 1983, we've got the polymerase chain reaction. Carrie Mullis discovers it after training himself using LSD, but that's another story. Legend. Yeah. <laughs> um, he basically wanted to imagine what the DNA molecule was like and what it was like to sort of break it apart. So he, he, he trained his brain to sort of hallucinate it. What's his name? Carrie Mullis. Won a yeah. Nobel Prize, but he didn't tell anyone how he'd done it until no. after he got the prize, obviously. No. Um, Carrie, then, what are you doing in there? <laughs> Nothing. Working. Actually made his own LSD yeah. as well. I mean, it's like total legend. In, I'm assuming it was in the garage. It really feels like the kind of thing you do in the garage on a Friday night. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he was actually doing it in his lab. I think it was just, you know, that, that was the kind of, you know, the vibe he was... He was I'm staying late again tonight. <laughs> <laughs> are you all right? <laughs> yeah, I'm off my tits. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine some cool stuff here. <laughs> so then in the mid 80s, we were sort of, you know, obviously able to amplify DNA, start to use it, start to sort of, you know, create more of it uh, and produce vaccines. So recombinant vaccines. Uh, so we sort of worked on whooping cough, uh, meningococcal meningitis, shingles, those kinds of vaccines come through sort of genetic uh, manipulation and then all the way up to so 1993 was when we sort of discovered the principles of CRISPR that you could do um, you know basically use what bacteria use uh, to recognize DNA and to chop it up uh, to start to really sort of you know get so more precision sort of take a little a little section out and then replace it with something else yeah yeah something like that yeah yeah so uh, and so that's I mean that's way back in the nineties actually. I didn't realize it was that early. Yeah, yeah. We didn't start actually being able to do anything useful with that for a while, did we? Not really until the sort of twenty tens, mm. and it won the the twenty twenty Nobel Prize uh, in chemistry. So you know that feels really recent, yeah. and of course everything that's happened in the last decade is is mad with with CRISPR, which is what we're going to get into. Um, but but you know it's a long long history. You know we're talking sort of sixty seventy years really. Of, of work to get to this point where now we're faced with, you know, what, what obviously uh, Matthew thinks of CRISPR as, as, you know, a bit of a moral dilemma in ways. And can I, can I just quickly, just to be clear, CRISPR is a gene editing technique, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I'm not the expert on here. Uh, so I got Professor Matthew to talk us through it a bit more. <laughs> the whole series of people got very interested in this in the first years of this century, and this culminated in Jennifer Doudner and Emmanuel Charpentier in particular, developing this technique called gene editing, whereby 
a single letter of DNA can be altered at will in any organism. So if you know the gene that you want to change, uh, if you've got the gene sequence and that you can deliver these various enzymes and bits of nucleic acid to the cell that's affected, then you can get the cell to say, oh, there's a change here. I'm going to use this bit of DNA that you've provided me with as a way of changing the DNA in the cell. So the key point here is that it's allegedly very, very precise. And secondly, it relies on really some very delicate understanding of the way that cells develop and divide. And that is different in different organisms and at different stages of the individual's life. And that's quite significant because this was discovered in 2012. It was applied to human cells in 2013, a few week, few months later, and then basically has transformed science in the last 10 years. So in the last 10 years, basically, as I said, if you know the gene that you're interested in and you can get this, inject this stuff into an egg or into a particular cell, you can change that organism in whatever way you want. And this has been transformative for biology in general, so not just kind of medical applications or practical applications, but you know something I'm interested in. People who study the sense of smell in ants were able to uh, alter the smell, uh, sense of smell in ants and change their behaviour and change their brain structure simply by changing a single gene. So it's provided an astonishing insight into the biology of all sorts of organisms. Obviously my little ears pricked up when I hear about the ants. <laughs> yeah. So what's going on there? This is a team from Rockefeller University in 2017. They published a paper saying they re removed this single gene that plays a key part in odour reception mm -hmm. in ants. Mm -hmm. It's called Orco. And they deleted it using CRISPR-Cas9. Mm -hmm. So it got in there with the tool. Um, the ants lost about 90% of their ability to smell. Mm-hmm. And they basically then, you know, so then you get all these roll-on effects. So this is what's interesting about this. So they they basically weren't able to socialize because, you know, it, so much of it depends on the sense of smell. Mm -hmm. But they also changed in other ways. So, like, they laid very few eggs for mm. reasons that aren't clear. Uh, they wandered aimlessly, like, you know, their purpose in life had just been taken away from them. Well, presumably because they couldn't find their way anyway. I, I, they, I guess They find so. their way through smell. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, I guess that ostracizes them effectively. Yeah. Uh, and also they showed really sort of poor parenting, which you wouldn't necessarily associate with smell as such, but they were just weren't taking care of larvae and grubs in the, in the same way. So, so I mean, it's it's sort of, this is the thing, like, you know, we, we talk about gene editing mm. and obviously the, the, DNA is, is, you know, this series of chemicals effectively all linked together that each sort of one, each gene sort of encodes for a protein. And, and, and if you don't make that protein in the same way, then you just say, oh, you, know, you don't have that protein. You've still got all the others. But that can have real knock-on effects. Mm. Like, you know, you, you don't have that protein now. And actually, you know, what you've done by altering the genome is, is had all these sort of unexpected, unanticipated effects that... that yeah, you just you know by taking out one gene, it can have a huge effect. I was going to say that's kind of a, a, a cautionary tale. It should be about. I the think ants. so. Yeah, exactly what you were saying. Where you're like, okay, there's no way that you would have been able to anticipate all of those behavioural effects. No. Um. So, if you do go in, you have to be aware that you might have. Yeah. Well, you will have unintended consequences. Oh yeah. I Unless mean, you just sort of get lucky. 
Well, you'd have but to you be don't really, really, really lucky. Yeah, you don't really want to be yeah, taking that chance. Especially because, I mean, it's not even a perfectly accurate tool, right? So so you, you put the CRISPR-Cas9 into a cell mm. or into an egg or whatever, and, and you hope it does the job that you think it's going to do because you've set it up to recognise a particular sequence of genes or whatever. But the, the, that's not, so sort of, you can't take it for granted that it'll just work in that in that way. And, and there are mistakes and there are sort of um, cuts that are made in, maybe in the wrong place. Yeah. So... Um, but I love with, the idea of someone gene editing, uh, you know, a human embryo or or you know, well, we'll get, stem cells. Let's get just to sort that. of crossing their fingers, <laughs> <laughs> like well. <laughs> but we're doing it with animals, right? So 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 the big thing at the moment is gene editing in animals, and this is happening sort of all over the world, and and for you know well motivated reasons, because as we know, scientists do things because you know they sit up and say, well, we could do this, we could do mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. so let's give it a go. So one of the things is is you you. Uh, you edit uh, a male sort of fertility gene effectively out of some really, really good stock. So, so out of, some, you know, like the bulls that you would use to sire mm. a new generation. Mm. And you can put that into um, other bulls, you know, knock out their their sort of uh, genes. Yeah. Put the bull gene in, you know, from the one that you want. And then they're producing sperm basically from that prized bull. And then, you, you know, you can just sire the sort of next generation of prize bulls without everyone having to have the prize bull. So so it's like, oh, we can produce better livestock if we just, you know, if we just basically take the elite animals, yeah, yeah, u- yeah. use genetic engineering to put that in the, the qualities of the, the, the elite animals into all the other animals. And, um, and therefore, you know, farming is better. And, and and not just farming. I immediately then think of um, like studs for, for horse racing. Yeah, of course. And how much yeah. money... Like good quality, horrible phrase, horse spunk goes for. <laughs> like it's insane. But if you could just say, well, no problem. I'm just going to take the uh, take the relevant genes out of you know this very fast horse, and then suddenly all my rubbish slow horses are also producing this fantastic yeah. horse spunk. Yeah, and they're, they're sort of looking at themselves and saying, did I do that? Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> feel like me. <laughs> this magnificent beast I've sired. <laughs> but, I mean, interestingly, you know, none of the scientists will have thought probably about the business model for that, but actually, you know, that's going to be a... Mm. Yeah, nobody's going to... I mean, how much are you going to charge for the for the genetics of your prize bull? I mean, the market is quite, going to be quite a big, lot. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, so that's that's quite an interesting thing. That well, it's not just science, is it? Interesting, because once, once it's, it's gone, there, it's then gone. The, the market, but then the the market is sort of flooded. totally you're totally flooded, and then the price gets driven right down. So, so, basically, someone can make a huge amount of money, and then and then it's just done. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So okay, so so that's sort of one example. I mean, in China, they're doing lots of stuff. So they're they're genetic, <laughs> of course, <laughs> no surprises. Uh, so they're sort of you know basically doing loads of CRISPR first. So they've got super fast aging monkeys, for instance. So you can study the genetics and the diseases of aging in these monkeys because as soon as they're born, they start to die. That's I mean that's basically well, that's ha- nice. yeah I mean which is obviously true of all of us but this is mightily accelerated mm-hmm. uh, so so you can do that kind of thing and 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 they sort of mess around with dogs mice rats pigs you know rabbits I mean they're, they're sort of doing all of it obviously it's a free for all there's no there's, there's no sense of um, you know well we shouldn't do it with these guys no no I it's mean just a sense of we should do it with anything we want. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the idea is that you get better quality meats or you get disease resistant 
livestock. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, but actually, when you look into the research that's going on in China, the things I've read say there's not really a lot of follow up. So people are doing a, it's a bit of a wild west sort of like you know, I wonder if we can do this, we can do that, and you know, oh, we've done that, let's do something else, and and, and nobody's sort of going back and saying, yeah, but what did that actually achieve? You know, did it get us anywhere? So, um, so I mean, it's a bit more regulated, I think, uh, over here and in in Europe and in America. So, so progress sort of feels a bit slower, I guess. But we are moving. It's slightly same... less regulated in America, isn't it? I think. Yeah, but there's different things in America mm. that you're allowed to do and, yeah. and not allowed to do. But um, and also, you know, here we have the sort of the sense of I'm not sure that people are really wanting to engage with the products of of gene editing yet. So, so you know, the idea is that you can, you know, British geneticists will say, oh, you know, we can help our food and farming systems, and and a lot of people are quite resistant to the idea of of tinkering with. Mm. what's you know in their in their view natural mm-hmm. i guess um so you could make things resistant to certain viruses um you can make agriculture more economically sort of viable i guess by you know reducing the need for antibiotics say yeah, uh, but at yeah, the same yeah. time people are sort of probably quite rightly a bit wary of like yeah but what else does that mean you know mm. what else does that bring in well the, i mean one thing that we do know i think uh, fairly sort of uncontroversially is that monoculture um in agriculture is quite bad yeah and obviously if you're sort of engineering these disease resistant crops then they're all sort of genetically identical and you're finding a huge swathes and it's quite bad for the they're vulnerable the soil they? and also then vulnerable because they're all the same yeah and you know genetic variation is actually a good thing yeah. generally, yeah. in terms of viability. So it's, it's not a quick fix, basically. Or it might look like a it, quick fix. But... Well, I think or it, it might ju- be just that. It might be a quick fix and then really bad news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's... So, I mean, Britain's starting to talk about, or the British government's starting to talk about opening up things a bit more because mm-hmm. we're you know, historically quite resistant. And obviously uh, the EU has had a sort of, a, a sort of no GMO sort of policy yeah. uh, in America. They're, they're as you say, they're a bit more gung ho about it in the food chain. So, so you, you've got a thing called the Aqua Advantage salmon, which is genetically engineered to grow twice as fast as a normal salmon, and to grow all year round. Mm. So, like natural salmon, natural Atlantic salmon at least grows in the spring and the summer while it's out at sea. Um, and and that's it. You know, it doesn't grow all year round, and it doesn't grow anywhere near as fast as this monster mm. uh, that they've got in America. But I'm not sure I'd eat it. I mean, why not? Something in me says yeah, I I don't want to be part of the experiment. Yeah, I know. Look, I know what you mean. I think my my concern is less about me eating it, and more sort of about the welfare of the. Like how, what is the experience like for a salmon of growing twice as quickly yeah. as it should? I mean, because I mean, and, and this is this is really dumb. But when you're a, a teenager and you're having growth spurts, it's really painful when you're growing <laughs> a bit too quickly. I remember that. I and told you you've got is, high problems. Is the yeah is is the salmon just just having that for its entire life until it's then eaten? I, I don't mean, know if it hurts miserable. salmon to grow. I mean, I well, genuinely don't know. No, I don't know either. But, but. Uh, and, and it may be, I don't know. I mean, it's worth thinking about. The thing I thought about growing was that you lose coordination, don't you? You start to sort of lose your hand eye coordination a bit. You, you're a bit sort of, you know, clumsy, effectively. What? 
When I was growing, when I was a teenager, when I was growing, I was clumsy. It was just like, I wasn't quite sure where all bits of my body were. You were an oaf. (laughs) (laughs) That's not generally true. Is it not? Oh, I thought thought my experience spoke for everybody. No, I don't think that's a universal experience. No, it was just an oaf. Yeah, I think so. Okay, it all all starts to make sense now. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing, like, you you can engineer, you can imagine engineering so that um, animals feel less pain, say. Yeah, and then you'd say, oh, "Okay, so farming, you know, we can kind of farm them how we like now because they don't really experience any pain." So you can imagine it sort of going in quite dark mm. directions in some so ways. So that's really sort of bleak, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but also sort of justifiable. Like, why would you want an animal to go through pain? We can engineer that out. Yeah, I think if I'm if I'm going down that route, I'm definitely much more interested in uh, figuring out ways of just growing meat in a lab without it being an animal. Yeah. Yeah. That, that feels better for me. I'm looking for pain-free. I think that would be my route of choice. Well, we'll just edit out the genes for consciousness. and, uh, yeah. and then... <laughs> <laughs> So it's basically just a walking slab of meat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another sort of purported use for this is to de-extinct species. Ah, yes, now. Um, I'm extremely interested in de-extinction, as you can imagine. But let's uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get stuck into this idea of bringing animals back from extinction and how altering genomes of entire animal populations could help to defeat disease. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. Now, Brooksy, I know we're not bringing dinosaurs back, but we might be able to bring some stuff back. Yeah, like mammoths. Yeah. I mean, I always felt that they were sort of close enough to dinosaurs. Yeah, for like the low-hanging fruit, really. Yeah, yeah. So, you, I mean, you can, you, you can. And they're not at all close to dinosaurs. It should be. Said. No, no, they're, they're really not. I mean, it, it's a terrible thought that actually. I'm pretty sure I had a ladybird book about dinosaurs or something that had a mammoth on the front. Maybe I'm imagining that. I hope you're imagining it. Yeah, um, I must be because because yeah, they were only illiterate. Yeah, they, they were literally only a few sort of tens of thousands of years ago. Yeah, they're just sort of prehistoric, um, but you know, recent prehistoric. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they're not millions of years. Anyway, ago. we've got some of their DNA, yeah. So we can we can do genetic engineering with that, uh, and uh, you can basically pretty much build up the the DNA. So you can either sequence it and just sort of work out what the DNA structure is, mm-hmm. and then rebuild that in the lab, which is what George Church is doing yeah. um, over in the states. Um, and he's at Harvard, and the, their sort of plan is to uh, to then sort of reconstruct that DNA, put it into the egg of a, an elephant. Uh, yeah. And then put the egg into an elephant, which carries the, the fertilized egg to gestation uh, to um, to birth, and then this elephant gives birth to a baby woolly mammoth. Kind of like to see that. Yes, yeah, you would. Um, but I mean, I feel like, all been, like George issues, Church has been talking been, about this yeah, for a long time. I, I think he, I think back in like 2016, he said, "Yeah, just give me a couple of years, yeah. guys." I think he did, and and it hasn't happened yet. Not materialised. So, yeah, and and maybe that's a good thing because I'm not sure that the environment is ready for you know changing the sort of species. That N- no, and um, you know there's there's ethical considerations around whether you should be using an elephant when yeah, and elephants, elephants aren't are in, exactly in numerous, trouble, are they? Yeah, themselves. Yeah, yeah no, uh, but you're right. You of course, no one is saying no to. A woolly mammoth, really, but I still don't think it's quite on the table, is it? I don't think it's on the table, and and the other stuff that people want to bring back, so using similar techniques, it's sort of you know it's doable to a certain degree, but nobody can agree whether it's a good thing or not. So you can use CRISPR Cas9, you know, all these sort of yeah. techniques for you know to put um, bits of old DNA into animals that you know basically can carry that kind of stuff. And and so you can you know you rebirth say the passenger pigeon or something like mm. that and bring that back, but nobody's that bothered about that. So What's, there has to be a sort of big payoff, really. Aren't they talking about bringing back sort of trying to de-extinct the Tasmanian tiger? Yeah, which is actually a very handsome, strange looking. So it's a it's a marsupial, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a stripy yeah. like large. Again, I want them marsupial. to do it, but I feel like they shouldn't. But they, they I mean, they literally didn't go extinct very long ago. They no. just got hunted to extinction, no. obviously. I yeah, think. Um, and that would be quite a <laughs> quite a fun one. And feels that feels very doable because it's so oh, yeah yeah it's so recent yeah. And like I say, funny looking things. 
Yeah, so therefore. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. If, if you're funny pigeon. looking and you went extinct recently, I'm saying yes, please. <laughs> now, I, I could, uh, as you know, very happily sit here and talk about um, the ethics of bringing animals back um, and which ones I'd like to bring back. Um, but gene editing isn't limited to, to just animals by any means. Many scientists are concerned about changing human genes in order to cure stuff like genetic diseases. Yeah, so, um, I mean, yeah, they're terribly worthy, aren't they? I mean, obviously, we want the Tasmanian tiger, and they want to cure things like sickle cell. Sure, sure. Fine, whatever. Um, Yeah, I mean... They're not mutually exclusive, guys. (laughs) So you've got these sort of various approaches you can use. So so you can, um, in an individual's cells, take take the cells and alter them and put them back in. You know, this is sort of somatic uh, genetic engineering, so just doing the body. Or if you've got a heritable disease, you can actually change, you know, the eggs and the sperm so that so that it's no longer inherited. Uh, this germline, um, this is called germline editing, and that's mm. much much more controversial. Yeah, because somatic um, editing is is sort of going into the person and having a little fiddle. Um, so it's sort of almost like you're you're treating the the, the symptoms that are there. Whereas germline is kind of preventative. It's like you're never going to have this problem in the first place. And you're and yeah, and your descendants won't have this problem yeah, either. Yeah, you're just, you inherited just this problem. We can fix it now so that it's no yeah. you know, no longer a problem in your family line. Yeah. Now you, the rest of the Edwards is huge balls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for for example. <laughs> first in the queue. Um and, and, and none of are any of these actually out on the market, so to speak? Not really, no. These are all either hypothetical or sort of extremely experimental, yeah. you know, single-use things. Um, so, um, and, and for good reason, because there's quite a lot of sort of concern about this, as, yeah. as Matthew told me. There's been far greater concern, and I think absolute outrage, in fact, uh, over the the potential to alter the next generation. In other words, to cure genetic in- diseases before the individual is even born, before it's even conceived. And in 2018, this actually happened uh, in China, where a Chinese researcher called He Ki carried out an experiment on, uh, at the time, it was said to be two individuals, two baby girls. Turned out there's a third uh, girl who was also born later on. And these were altering all their genes, not just the cells in their blood or anything like that. So it was done as a part of an IVF procedure. And uh, this was done for, well, frankly, no good reason. The experiment he was planning to do uh, was pointless. There was no medical need for it. And it didn't do what he said it was going to do. And what happened, as far as we know, is that the, the genes of the girls were altered in ways we have not seen in any other individuals anywhere on the planet. So CRISPR, despite being a pair of scissors, turns out not to be quite so precise. So this metaphor of a scalpel or scissors is not right. And this revealed two things. Firstly, that the procedure was much less precise than we thought. Secondly, the absolutely fundamental thing is why on earth would you wish to do such a thing? Because um, it's now been accepted that the only people who would actually benefit from this are couples 
who both have the same genetic disease in the same number of copies who want to have a biological child. And we don't know how many such people there are around the world, but estimates range in the low hundreds. Yeah, I, I suppose actually that's the thing we should have been really clear about the difference between somatic changes and germline changes is that germline changes mean that you've altered the genetic makeup of every single cell yeah. in the resulting body, whereas somatic, that's not the case. Yeah. Um, and, and also doing it in a somatic way doesn't mean anything about their heritability. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So germline is a much more sort of uh, serious operation. So um, where are we going to go if we want to do such a thing? Uh, let me have a little think. I do remember um, that, um, is he called Her John Kay? Yeah, Her John uh, Kay, I think. Her John Kay. Yeah. Um, and it was, yeah, not not, not brilliant. Um, <laughs> but I did sort of assume that that was a fairly isolated example. I don't know if I assumed it. I think I just hoped it was. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of isolated. And, and he's like absolutely the fall guy for this. But he had collaborators who of course, yeah. maybe didn't know as much. Uh, and there were people there were people sort of under investigation in the States as well that he collaborated with who mm. nobody's quite sure how much they knew. And there's sort of question marks over whether people sort of just turned a blind eye to, to what he was doing. But he, I mean, he was, you know, everyone says, he was like massively naive and massively ambitious and wanted to do something that you know, put him on the map sort of thing. And so he, yeah. he falsified all kinds of um, documents. He didn't tell the parents-to-be about any risks or about you know, the full mm. risk. He basically didn't do the proper safety testing. He broke the law um, or broke multiple laws. Um, and um, so, you know, it was... He has put himself on the map. Yeah, he's certainly done that. that. Yeah. yeah, and he's out of prison now. So uh, you know, so he, who knows where he's up to? He, he came out in April. I mean, scientists who get punished for this kind of thing—they never stay in prison for long. Funnily enough, no, but, and he's going to be in a nice white-collar prison. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. So he's he's had to do some time. Bit of a fall guy, I think, for the whole program. Sure. In some ways, and uh, it's really interesting. So, so what he did was effectively uh, genetically alter those, or try to genetically alter those children two of them at least, we don't know about the third, uh, so that they were resistant to HIV. Mm. And they were f their fathers, or the sperm donors for, for the IVF embryos, were HIV positive, which meant that they, those people couldn't take part in any IVF anyway. So mm. they were sort of excluded. So he kind of exploited their desperate desperation. Yeah. Uh, so these couples who were desperate to have children couldn't have them, couldn't join the, the, the IVF programme because uh, the father was HIV positive. So he, you know, he definitely sort of exploited that desperation, um, you know, which is a thing we've seen in other genetics. Like in, um, there's a Korean guy uh, who exploited sort of women and and took their eggs without them knowing or without permission and stuff like that. Um, so you know, geneticists are not, you know, as a whiter than white, <laughs> whiter than white, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and and maybe that's just a function of uh, if you want to work in this area, you've got to have a certain. Uh, gung ho sort of attitude, but there's, I mean, it, it is different in the UK because our our laws are pretty strict on this, aren't they? It is, and and one of the things that's come out in the last few months is that people looking at the documents and the the sort of safety protocols and the, and the protocols about the experiment, 
say there's really something fishy about that Chinese experiment where it looks like there may have been government officials who turned a blind eye because, you know what we were saying about you know the side effects of these mm-hmm, kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So the alteration in the CCR5 gene, which brings that kind of HIV resistance, mm. has also been shown to um, enhance cognition and memory and basically make or, or purport to possibly make a child more intelligent. So, uh, right, okay. so you start to think, oh, okay, maybe maybe people were sort of thinking, oh, if he does this, and if it turns out to be, you know, kind mm-hmm. of good for improving a, a child's sort of cognitive abilities, maybe we'll forgive him for for his. Uh... Yeah. So who knows what's happened oh, to those it's children mucky, now? Isn't it? It is mucky, it's really mucky. Yeah, because that that does bring you into the idea of mm. sort of designer babies. And mm. um, so far, that that link between the gene and intelligence is only suggestive. Um, and that may have been what he was trying to do, actually, rather than the HIV yeah. stuff. Uh, but we just don't know enough, you know. And and you can't do that in the UK, as you say. You know, you, you can't manipulate embryos beyond just a few days, uh, and you need to be able to really sort of justify why you're doing it if you do it. That yeah, because that it has been done, hasn't it? There was this idea that you know you can you can engineer an embryo just to try and sort of get some sort of understanding of what might be going on there uh, with pregnancy loss. And, and what they found, actually, is, is there's um, that pr- the pregnancy loss is associated with, and that's all you can say with genetics, it's like not caused by, but it's yeah, associated yeah, yeah. with, uh, an altered perception of male odours and differences in brain regions that process smells. So again, it's like another one of these like side effects you'd never have seen coming. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's the thing. So you, you get these sort of strange links between genetic alterations and you know things that show up that, that you just can't imagine how so is that linked. is that saying then that if if a a pregnant woman was to notice that she was her perception of, of male smells was changing and that would be an alarm was, bell was different maybe was um was different from how she perceived others to be i'm, I'm not sure whether it's it's sort of um altered all the time or if you have a slightly different smell um, perception, yeah. you're more likely to suffer repeated pregnancy loss. It's a good example where it's just in- incredibly it's um, complicated. Incredibly complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but you know, you, so you get things like you know, to go back a bit more basic. So, if you alter rabbits to be leaner, you find out they've got they just get longer tongues, as well as being leaner. You know, the tongues stick out of their mouths. It's just sort of bizarre stuff. So, and there were cattle that were tweaked to have uh, no horns. Mm-hmm. Then actually, you know, which is a kind of a useful thing because part of the uh, farming process in a lot of cases is to remove the horns. Yeah. Um, but actually, th- these cattle were found. Then they had a long stretch of bacterial DNA in their genomes, which conferred some antibiotic resistance to them. Weirdly, so it's like, oh, did not see that coming. Yeah, I mean it. it- this entire discussion can be summed up with unintended consequences. Can't it? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Just yeah, like, yeah. ah, yeah, we were yeah. not expecting that. Yeah, people at the Crick Institute Oops. basically said that they analysed data from previous experiments with CRISPR-Cas9. They found about 16% of the engineered organisms had accidental mutations. So that really is telling you, leave it alone. Isn't it? It's sort of telling me yeah. that, or that we're not good enough yet to mm. certainly take this out and and really. Yeah, use sorry, it. Uh, that that actually that's what I mean. I don't, I don't mean leave it alone because I think that the the applications are potentially sort of quite revolutionary. But don't rush it. 
I suppose yeah. that's it. Yeah, don't F- figure. Try and don't figure out what's it. going on. So whoa, 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 yeah. whoa. Okay, yeah. stop. Think. I mean, it's basically like crossing the road, isn't it? Look yeah. both ways. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that way, there's some cars. This way, oh, it was a herd of wildebeest, wasn't it? That? <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose, given that we're asking what geneticists will do next, uh, I want to feel slightly more comfortable about how sort of uh, responsible and trustworthy they are. I mean, they don't have a great track record. I mean, no. most of them, I'm sure 99% are absolutely fine. Yeah, but 1%. But they've got the rogue elements there. Um, and, and Matthew's quite concerned about things like that, uh, particularly when it comes to something called gene drives. So gene drives are basically a piece of DNA that copies itself furiously from generation to generation. And this is a, an idea that was developed at the beginning of the century in order to think about how could we transform pest populations, like, for example, mosquitoes. How could we either eradicate them from a local area, make them sterile, or make them resistant to malaria so they couldn't transmit it? And basically, this is a bit like a genetic bomb. Once you let it go, you can't get it back, and this thing will just kind of copy itself madly. Now, none of these things have been released They have been built in the laboratory in uh, a couple of places and tested in kind of large cages, but none have been let out because people, the scientists themselves, are so concerned about what might happen. Now, here we get to the issue of who should decide. So let's say that you are uh, in a village in Burkina Faso, which is one of the places that's been studied for this, um, where you have very high levels of malaria. And half a million people a year die from malaria, most of them children under five. That's with all the bed nets and the DDT and all the rest of it. We are still losing half a million people a year. So I can quite imagine if I was a parent in a village in Burkina Faso, I would be very keen to have this system released so I could get rid of the mosquitoes and my children would have a chance of surviving. But firstly, you've got to explain to people what you're doing. They have to be informed. They have to provide what's called informed consent and where you've got populations that are partly or often entirely illiterate, they may not even have a word for gene in their language. How do you explain what you're planning to do? Well, a phrase that um, immediately set the alarm bells going for me there was, the scientists themselves are concerned. <laughs> um, and uh, I feel like we spend quite a lot of time in different episodes talking about this exact dilemma, which uh- is who decides so we talked about it in our geoengineering episode we talked about it in our endangered animals episode it just keeps coming up and it is key to everything isn't it it is and and you know scientists don't definitely don't want to be the like oh we've done this thing for you uh, we'll just you know hand it over and uh, it'll all be fine because they know it won't be but they also know that there's a possibility it'll do some good and they want to you know give it with informed consent, I guess, but but you know that's that's so hard to do, as you're saying. Yeah, you know, so so you know, I don't know how you sort of get across the sort of political and ethical issues. So like gene drives, these things, you know, which he described like releasing a bomb, basically. Yeah. I mean, they're great in that you know if you do it in a population of mosquitoes, and you can do it in just the mosquitoes that carry malaria, mm-hmm. and you can say reduce the population of females so so that all the, all of the successful progeny are male and all of a sudden you've got a population of entirely male mosquitoes that can't go anywhere can't you know 
can't continue to breed. So the population collapses. So it's a really you know clever idea. And there's things you can do with um, like invasive rodent species, feral cats. You know, people in Edinburgh are researching how you might control grey squirrels, which are an invasive species, mm-hmm. um, and using this sort of gene drive technology. But you know what we, as with all of this stuff, unintended consequences. So you you can I mean a cause sort of a disruption in the ecosystem. Um, you could get uncontrollable spread of this genetic alteration. So it'll cross, say, uh, national boundaries. Mm. So one parliament, you know, approves it. So the English parliament approves it, spreads into Scotland. The Scottish parliament's got no choice but just to accept it. Mm. Yeah, is that what? Is that okay? Uh, there's sort of legal issues there. You get mutations. So so you get um, the the thing that you've changed within the thing can cause mutations in other areas of of the genome. So yeah. again, unintended consequences. Yeah, there. Like these mosquitoes are massive, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and really uh, sort of sexually frustrated and quite angry. <laughs> <laughs> and and you can actually have um, you know modified animals that will actually develop mutations that neutralise the modification as well, because you know nature finds a way. That's the kind yeah, of yeah yeah yeah. It's going to sort of fight back. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's not a great thing. Also, there's the there's the obvious point, which I think is that with grey squirrels, so that's an invasive species. So you kind of know what it will be like without them because that's what it used to be like. Yeah. But with mosquitoes carrying malaria, they're native to the area, and so wiping them out, you don't know what the knock on is going to be. Like what. So I, I'm, I'm literally, I'm just speculating here, but what, what feeds on mosquitoes? Well, birds, yeah, for instance. Birds, so what, what's the impact going to be on, on the, you know, certain bird populations? What were that? Like, it has a sort of a ripple effect that yeah. you have to think about. Yeah. And I, I, see, I'm not saying that, you know, some bird populations in decline is going to outweigh saving half a million lives, but you've got to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, and also, if you wipe out that particular species of mosquito, you'll get invasions of other species that might not carry malaria yet, but who knows whether they'll, you know, they'll evolve so freely yeah. that they might you know, evolve other well, problems. That's, that's the thing, you're, you're, you're leaving it open uh, and a niche, uh, a, a niche for, yeah. for another, I mean, probably another mosquito to populate. Yeah. Hmm. Um, this is making me worry quite a lot this episode. I thought it probably would. Uh, and so let me just ask a quick uh, sort of um, conspiracy theorist style question, if I may. Um, we we obviously hear quite a lot about biological warfare, synthetic lab-made pandemics. Um, is there any truth to any of that kind of fear? Uh, I mean, I'd love to say no. Oh, But, uh, I mean, Matthew has some interesting things to say about the potential of lab leaks. I'm going to preface everything that I'm going to say with the statement that all the evidence we have is that COVID-19 is a naturally occurring spillover event. That is, that it is a disease that originated almost certainly in bats and was transmitted to humans. Uh, The latest evidence suggests in two very... Uh, close together waves in the famous market in Wuhan in China. But that does not mean to say that it is not impossible that either a lab leak, so 
a leak from a laboratory of somebody cultivating a particular uh, virus or from uh, doing what are called gain-of-function studies. So these are experiments that became very fashionable at the beginning of this century, following 9-11. So the American government in particular became extremely exercised about the prospect of terrorists acquiring biological weapons. And this is something that they'd been concerned about for decades, initially with regard to the Soviet Union. And quite rightly too, because it turns out that the Soviet Union was developing very dangerous new biological weapons using these techniques of genetic recombination. So in order to try and understand this process and also to respond to the growing conviction that we were heading for a pandemic, because in 2002 there was the first SARS outbreak, uh, which was kind of like a dress rehearsal for COVID and we didn't pay attention. And then there was another outbreak of something called MERS, uh, which killed about 800 people in the Middle East. And again, we weren't paying attention to that. But the epidemiologists and the virologists were, and they were trying to predict what would be the course of change, of natural mutation of a particular uh, set of viruses. And so they started doing what are called gain-of-function studies. That is deliberately making the viruses more transmissible or more lethal in their effects. Now, you might go, you might say, that seems utterly bonkers. Why would anybody want to do that? <laughs> and I'm inclined to agree. Now, the argument they gave was, well, this will help us predict the course of future pandemics. Uh, and I'm afraid the last two and a half years have shown that they didn't. One of my favourite things, I think, is when our experts, before they give an answer, they offer a, a massive caveat <laughs> and then a big... <laughs> But now him, <laughs> now like, hear what I'm saying yeah, and not what yeah. I'm not saying. Yeah, take no, take this with, with a pinch of salt. <laughs> but this is gonna get spicy. <laughs> but he's uh, basically right, isn't he? Yeah, I mean we know this, don't we? Because we we've talked about this before. Like you you get these sort of ideas of like I wonder if or maybe we should that, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a research program where you're like. Oh shit! I hope this doesn't get out of the lab. Yeah, because it's like the, there were the Dutch uh, bird flu researchers who wanted to know whether you could aerosolize bird flu because at the moment it's 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 tra it's quite hard to transmit. Mm. But they're saying you know maybe there's like genetic changes that would allow it to just sort of be transmitted in the air effectively through like duck sneezes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they they did it and they they sort of like oh this is what you'd need to do or this is what evolution would need to do or this is what a terrorist would need to do in order to you know aerosolize this bird flu. And then they they kicked up a real stink when nobody allowed them to publish it. Mm. So they, like, people were saying guys maybe maybe don't put that well, in the in the literature. Yeah, we'll leave we'll leave that one actually. It's yeah. all a bit um like the plot of uh, Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> <laughs> So and 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 there are leaks from labs. So like obviously scientists keep things like anthrax and smallpox in labs and they work on them to try and sort of work out I guess you know preventative measures. Yeah, you know, yeah I, I, I get that. But I the, think. but you know scientists are not great at keeping these things under control. So so the 2014 which wasn't that long ago Right, seventy-five scientists at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention were exposed to anthrax, like just because of you know, I guess you know, some kind of scientific administrative error. 
Um, and then just a few weeks after that, the FDA in America, uh, the officials ran across 16 forgotten vials of smallpox. <laughs> just like <laughs> sitting in the fridge. And what, what's in these? Oh, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but often they don't even... I've definitely read before about... Um, the, the sort of security levels, and quite often some of this stuff is not kept in the highest security facilities. I mean, it's, it's quite bad. So, like in in China, there was um, people working on the SARS virus, and that got out, and um, basically because they managed to infect themselves with it, so it wasn't a leak from the lab as such. Mm. But during the process of of research, they got infected with SARS, didn't know, just went home, um, and seven other people got SARS from that, including the main guy's mother, uh, who died. So, um, yeah, so, so I think, you know, you would, you'd have to argue that, that yes, this stuff is interesting and potentially useful, but let's be careful. Yeah. Okay. So the question we're asking, what will geneticists do next? Um, I mean, all sorts. Yeah. I mean, mean, normally we go for a yes, no. Yeah. But uh, but here uh, it's just like. Almost anything you can think of, (laughs) (laughs) someone's having a crack. Here's what Matthew had to say. I've got to get over both the excitement. So what genetics is going to do next is carry on discovering fundamental things about how life works, how it came to be. And it's also going to enable us, if we think these powers can be used safely and accurately, to cure diseases, to create new crops, for example. Ways of enabling plants to deal with climate change, to deal with dehydration, to deal with drought, to even introduce different forms of photosynthesis because not all plants use the same forms of photosynthesis. Some forms are much more effective than others. We might be able to increase CO2 uptake in certain plants by transferring their carbon dioxide processing mechanisms, photosynthetic mechanisms from one species to another. That's the kind of thing we can do. So I think there's astonishing times for discovery, for practical applications, including in agriculture and for medicine. But the absolute precondition is that all this is done safely, ethically, with an awareness of the potential consequences, because you want to meet the bad consequences before they happen. You want to stop them happening, not meet them after it's too late. Amen. Well, I'm guessing that's, you know, that's the point of his book, isn't it? Is is to say, guys, it's great. It's all really good. potential here. Yeah, but let's look at the history and, and learn from it, hopefully. Let's just be a little bit careful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he sort of sounds optimistic. I'm not convinced that, that yeah, the optimism bears so out, really. Optimistic. I do. I, well, I suppose I'm optimistic in the sense that great things will come out of this. Yes. I think some bad stuff will also come out of it. Yeah, and I think, but I think the the bad stuff will almost happen first before we get to the good stuff. Mm. That that's sort of my problem with it. It's like I don't know how you fix that because I think that's just human. It's almost like the flaw in science, isn't it? Is that the quick and easy stuff is usually negative, and the, yeah, the yeah, hard yeah, yeah. and 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 really positive stuff it it takes longer and a lot more care. But it's worth it in the end, I guess. Yeah, you think so. Except for those fat salmon. Those poor fat salmon. Although it has made me think about sushi.
Eureka is a Stack production presented by Dr. Michael Brooks and Rick Edwards. The production team is Temi Adebayo, Katie Baxter, Luke Moore and Charlie Morgan. Sound designed by Katie Baxter. Special thanks to today's expert, Professor Matthew Cobb. Please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. It does make a massive difference. You can also find us on Twitter at EurekaPod. We also really love hearing from you guys. So if you have any burning questions you want answering, drop us an email at eureka at stack.london. Uh, that's S-T-A-K dot London. Or you can always find us on Twitter at EurekaPod. Thanks. Eureka is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.